Hi, good morning, Lars. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Yeah, excited to talk to you a little bit about your work and uh, your contributions to the field of electrophysiology. Perhaps as an intro, maybe you could just introduce yourself to our guests. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, good morning. Um, well, I'm, I'm working in the red blood cell field and uh, the work I'm doing is quite uh, interdisciplinary. So this is also reflected by the fact that I'm affiliated to the medical faculty of Saarland University as well as the, to uh, the physics department. And um, well, we, well, I'm interested in the, in the red blood cell and uh, the properties, the physiology, the pathophysiology, but also I'm always interested in applying new techniques, uh, physical models, and um, well, the kind of latest, latest develop, well, technical developments onto the field. And in terms of the, the work that you're doing on, on red blood cells, is there any particular project that you have ongoing at the moment? Yeah, we, we continuously try to well, I mean, it's always interesting to, to do science, but at the same time, we are dedicated to do something useful that helps uh, the people. And uh, I mean, one of these work is, is new, new diagnostic um, tests. And I mean, there's, for instance, one, uh, one group of disease, it's called neuroacanthocytosis. So it's a neurodegenerative disease or a group of diseases. And they are associated with a very strange shape of the red blood cells, these so-called acanthocytes. And nobody actually knows how the shape of the red blood cell is related to the neurodegeneration. And even, even going even further, the diagnosis of this disease is very unreliable. Yeah? So, what people do is they do blood smears and they try to identify the number of these deformed red blood cells, these acanthocytes. But they vary to a big amount uh, from patient to patient and also in the, in the uh, disease progression, it's not a, it's not a reliable parameter. And um, well, we very recently, and it's not, not even, uh, published. Um, we very recently found a very easy method um, uh, to, to establish a biomarker or a diagnostic biomarker for these diseases of neuroacanthocytosis, and this is related to the erythrocyte sedimentation rate. What is one of the oldest uh, diagnostic parameters at all going back to the, to the old Greeks? But so far, it was mainly associated to inflammatory diseases where the sedimentation rate is very much increased. And now we found that in this neuroacanthocytosis patients, this sedimentation rate is, is much, much slower. So it goes into the opposite direction to uh, all the things that were done so far. And this makes it a very, uh, a very good discrimination. And it's a well, it's a very, a very easy, cheap, reliable method. So sometimes, well, new methods can be that easy, but sometimes you always need to have absolute high tech to, uh, to get to new horizons.
And and what what um, so obviously you're you're focused on on red blood cells. Was there anything in particular um, that led you to to be more inclined to investigate uh, the function of red blood cells and, and what that could mean for some of these uh, diseases? Well, my my personal history is that I started. I mean, by training, I'm a I'm a physicist, and then I. I did my PhD in biophysics and then from job to job I became more more and more medical and um, well this is also reflected by the work the publications um, I, I produce I mean at the well at the at the very beginning um, my work was related to um, well to the investigations of membrane transport in in general uh, like, well, to the end of the last century, the red blood cell was the model cell to investigate membrane transport because the cell does not have any uh, internal ion stores and uh, well, it's a cell that's easy to get, it's a human cell and, and so on. So, so this cell was the model cell to investigate membrane transport and this is also how, how I started, I mean, my uh, my interest was in, in ion channels and electrophysiological measurements. Um, but then I asked myself, what are the channels good for? And well, 20 years back, we, we knew maybe two channels in the red blood cells, in the red blood cell, and there was no real physiological function known uh, of these channels. And I mean, this, this world changed in the last 20 years completely now. We know at least half a dozen uh, channels in the red blood cells, and we know that the malfunction of these channels is related to um, uh, to diseases. And I mean, these are mainly directly red blood cell related diseases, something like sickle cell disease or uh, xerocytosis. Uh, well, there are, there are further ones, but it it may also um, result in, in other diseases like the uh, neuroacondocytosis I, I just mentioned, what is a neurodegenerative disease. Interesting. And, and I saw that, um, that you were working also together with the European Red Cell Society uh, in collaboration with Anna Bakunova. And yes. I was seeing, you mentioned uh, that historically there was you know, not so much detail into the contributions that red blood cells would have regarding membrane transports and, and you know, your history into ion channels and, and the emergence of um, the different functions of, of the different channels involved and what that could mean uh, for these, you know, disease types. So maybe my, my, my bigger question was looking at uh, from the perspective of having a, a tight-knit community of other like-minded researchers, what, what is it like working collectively uh, with a society like the, you know, ERCS? Okay, so we have the, we have the European um, Red Cell Society, what is, uh, what is even, an, not even an official organization, it's more like a, um, like a club or something like this where people come together and uh, uh, exchange uh, their research results and um, well also the the community is i mean if you compare to neuroscience or uh, 
is well, cardiac uh, or the cardiac field. It's a it's a very small uh, community. Um, well, and if you if you look into uh, into the ion channels, uh, the uh, the subgroup of people that that really understand and investigate ion channels in the red blood cell is is even smaller, because the ion channels in the red blood cell is a really is a really difficult um, uh, field. I'll, I'll draw the red blood cell in principle. Well, if you look at the morphology and um, well, the, the cellular components, is much easier than any other cell. But we uh, um, we face the challenge that the number of ion channels in the red blood cell is is very low. So I mean, if you do all cell recordings of, of red blood cells, the currents we usually get are extremely small. And since there is no kind of um, um, well, translational machinery left in red blood cells, and at least the human red blood cells, they have an average lifetime of something like 120 days. And if you know what is the protein turnover rate in a, in a normal cell, and then you face the situation that during these 120 days of the red blood cell in this circulation, there is no further protein production in the, in the red blood cell, you see that that some of the proteins will lose their functionality over time uh, because the, the, the protein aging just, just happens and there is no, no replacement. And that means uh, also in terms of ion channels, you have a, you have a big variability of the, of the red blood cells in, in the population you get just because they have uh, the different ages from, well, freshly born red blood cells to something like 120 days old red blood cells. And um, well, currently we are at a stage in this ion channel research that, um, that we well, know quite well the, the function of, of the single channels, but what is not yet sufficiently explored is the interaction of these channels. Um, so, I mean, what is, what is established to, to give you an example is uh, the mechanosensitive channel PS1 is, um, well, is, is uh, abundant in red blood cell. And if this channel is activated due to the huge calcium gradient, so this is the, the most important ion to, to enter the cell, uh, you will get a, a calcium increase. The best known channel in the red blood cell is the, is the so-called goddess channel. Um, and this is a, a calcium activated potassium channel. So if, if, the, uh, if the calcium enters um, the cell, then this goddess channel will be activated. I mean, this interaction is kind of, of, of established. But what is, what is the next step that happens? And, and this is, uh, well, it's just an emerging concept. Because if this goddess channel is, is open, you induce um, a, a potassium permeability. And uh, if you go back to the membrane potential, the red blood cell or the membrane, the resting membrane potential in the red blood cell is not as in other cells determined by the potassium, but determined by the chloride. Because 
the potassium conductance in intact red blood cells is very, very low. So this means if you suddenly open the goddess channel, your resting membrane potential that is normally around minus 10 millivolts uh, jumps to something like minus 70 millivolts. And this voltage step um, may induce also um, voltage activated channels that are also present in the red blood cell. And then you think, well, voltage activated channels you should just have in excitable cells but they are also present in red blood cells. And I'm convinced this is not just the remnant of well, some, some developments. I think they, they, also, they also have a function, but this is things that will, or well, I expect to, uh, well, I expect these facts to, to be established and emerge in the next couple of years. Yeah, so uh, you had mentioned, uh, you know, some of the work that you're hypothesizing at the moment, is that something that the faculty that you're currently working with is actively investigating or what, how do you foresee looking into this a little bit more and, and gathering some data and all this? Oh, I mean, this is, this is, uh, this is absolutely right. We are, you're working on, on that and, um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, what to say, I'm free to, to talk about this because, uh, well, also already a couple of years ago, I, I wrote something like a hypothesis uh, paper where I introduced this and, and we have, in the meantime, we have preliminary data that really, well, kind of supports this, this hypothesis and, well, we continue working on that and, um, well, I'm, I'm optimistic that soon we will also um, well, publish further evidence. Perfect. Yeah, so we look forward to, to seeing more of, uh, of the work coming. And I, I also noticed that uh, earlier on in your career, you're also involved in a book. So you have a calcium signaling book that, that you had authored. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that process. Uh, I noticed that there's a lot of um, collaborators on there. What was it like to, to kind of amass, you know, this kind of work? And then how was that process in, in publishing um, a book and, and having all this information was it something that took a lot of time? Or? Well, um, well, the calcium and the calcium signaling is a is a fascinating topic that goes well across all different kinds of cells and is is not limited to the red blood cell. I mean, it also happens in the red blood cell, um, but um, well, if you think of um, uh, synaptic transmissions or if you think of the heartbeat, I mean there the calcium is the key um, the key messaging molecule and um, well in the past I, I was also uh, researching more in the cardiac field so at times the red cell and the cardiac myocytes were investigated in, in parallel, both, both are fascinating cells. And uh, well, the, the calcium signaling is so interesting because, well, it's not, it's not digital. I mean, it's nothing like uh, there is presence or absence of calcium. There is an entire calcium signaling toolkit and it's the spatio-temporal um, encoding of the calcium signals that that really makes the signal a signal so it's not just the question 
well, whether it's there or not, it's the question how much and how fast and, um, well, there's quite often also oscillating or more complicated behaviors in, in, um, in the calcium signaling. So it's an, it's an entire, it's an entire language and to decode this language or this, this tool box, it's a, it's a challenge and uh, well, for the red blood cell, we still we still working on that. And what it makes so fascinating is that that well, it spans the entire um, the entire um, well the entire life of the cell. So lots of stimulating stuff is is related to calcium, but also the cell death and the well, the apoptosis, uh, well, I mean, red blood cells do not follow an, an apoptotic signal because they don't have mitochondria. So in the red cells, it's a, it's a little bit uh, different. And it's also, um, well, a topic under debate right now, how exactly red blood cells die. But, um, but calcium is definitely part uh, of that story. And then kind of going into, yeah, another direction, obviously, for the better part of, you know, more than half the year, we've been dealing with the situation uh, globally with the, the corona um, pandemic in terms of, you know, I don't know if you've, you know, seen the, the literature of, you know, the significance that ion channels can play or do play in respiratory disease targets, uh, maybe you've seen um, that they've noticed that, you know, the SARS-CoV-2 encodes you know, three putative ion channels. Um, what's your take on, on, on all of this? Do you see that this is an emerging topic that will be investigated a little bit more closely now that, you know, we're seeing topics um, like this emerge? You also, you know, take a look at recovering patients who are dealing with maybe fibrosis in the lungs. Well, I mean, obviously there is a, is a need, but also a hype about the, uh, uh, the corona research and well, actually, when when we realized the uh, the, uh, uh, the pandemic situation in in March earlier this year, uh, we also thought of well, what what we could do or what we could possibly contribute to to improve the situation for the patients. And I mean, as you as you remember, there was a lot of patients were very critically ill so they were supplied with uh, ventilation machines and there was a was a, a lack of ventilation machines so so we thought well since the red blood cells are the major transporters of the oxygen how could we possibly help patients um, um, to improve their oxygen supply and then we we went back in in evolution and looked at the reptiles. And if you look at reptiles, then you realize that that reptiles get a significant part of their oxygen supply through their skin. And if you now compare this uh, with the humans, also humans have about one percent of their oxygen supply they get over the skin. And then we thought, might, maybe there is a possibility to, to increase this portion uh, of the oxygen supply through the skin because, well, the, the, the patients got the problems with the, with the ordinary oxygen, oxygen supply through the lungs. 
And uh, well, then we identified some conditions where um, the, um, the oxygen supply through the skin is improved. And I mean, this depends a little bit on temperature, also on, uh, on the moisture. So if, if you have a, a wet skin, uh, the, the oxygen transportation is better. And then we came across a substance group, what is called fluocarbons. And these fluocarbons can dissolve 20 times more oxygen than, than water can do. And then we came up with a, with a concept and said, well, maybe we could cover the skin of the patients uh, with the fluocarbons and then increase the, uh, the oxygen supply uh, uh, to the patients. And this is something we are, we are currently testing. So it's a, so we're testing it with, uh, in, in animal experiments with new mice. And it's a, it's a bit of a crazy idea. And I'm not sure whether it, it will work, but, uh, uh, but sometimes it's also important to, to follow up crazy ideas, even if there is, well, a limited chance of success. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, um, until you prove or disprove something, uh, I would you know, argue to the contrary that every road is worth taking, uh, right? And, and uh, you never know, you could stumble upon something that puts you on a new path. Uh, yep. For totally um, new and, um, yeah, relevant. So I, I don't know, like in the whole topic now, uh, and maybe this goes a little bit in a different direction. You know, have you ever heard of um, the author James Nestor? No, I haven't. He, he published like a New York Times, um, you know, bestseller where he had discussed um, the importance of breathing. And then the reason I bring that up is because he mentioned a little bit how red blood cells are quite critical in, you know, transporting oxygen and what science could do to kind of look at maybe a therapeutic for individuals that were in the, you know, coronavirus um, case struggling with, with this, um, right? And uh, in his book, he, he kind of talks about you know, you look at natives going up into Mount Everest and uh, you realize the significance of red blood cells and, and how you acclimate yourself and how your body adjusts, um, how you're having more of a capacity um, to transport more oxygen in your blood type. And, and that, that's very interesting for me as a, um, in a previous life, I was a, a high elite level athlete and I, I definitely know the significance of increasing your VO2 max, you need oxygen to perform at a high level. And if you're trained, then there is some incorporation to the significance that, uh, you know, deep down inside of the molecular level, um, red blood cells play. So it's quite interesting to hear you uh, talking about some of these things that you think uh, are, are important and relevant. Well, there's, a, there's another, another project I can, uh, I can tell you a little bit about. So it's also very close to, to publication, so it's submitted. Um, and it's, it's exactly related to this, uh, to this high altitude adaptation. So, I mean, it's, it's absolutely true that if you climb up a mountain and you stay long enough, well, let's say a couple of weeks at high altitude, your red blood cell number increases. Uh, so, so you just simply, um, increase the number of cells to have a higher oxygen transport capacity. Um, and now the, the question is what, what happens if you then go down to, to sea level, what happens with your excess red blood cells? 
And there is a, well, a 20 year old theory. And I mean, this theory you can even find in many hematology textbooks is that if you, if you have to remove excess red blood cells, then the young cells are removed first from the circulation. And this theory is called neocytolysis. And first indications came from, from the space flights, but it was also adapted to this, this high altitude stuff. But if, you, but if you look into the literature and all these original publications, the evidence for this neocytolysis theory is very, very weak. And therefore, well, two years ago, we thought, okay, we're gonna make a study and really prove that there is neocytolysis. So we went up to this, uh, uh, 12 volunteers to the Jungfraujoche in Switzerland and well, did stay there for three weeks to have this increase in the red cell number and then we looked what happened if we go down. And it turned out that this neocytolysis does not occur. So it's, it's also a kind of hypothesis that everybody knows that is in the textbooks, but um, obviously it's not true, at least not with the intermediate altitude. So we went up to uh, 3,500 meters and we got in, in our volunteers the increase in the red blood cell number. So we measured that. But uh, the decrease in the red blood cells was only by a stop of the red blood cell production of the erythropoiesis. So uh, there was no, no removal of, of red blood cells at all. Wow, interesting. Yeah, we look forward to receiving and, and reading more of your of your work. And obviously, um, throughout the life of this conversation, we see the significance of you know red blood cells and, and where you see that growing and emerging. So, very much looking forward to uh, you know seeing more published work from you and your your team over there. Yeah, well, we try our best to <laughs> to well to bring out the the, the knowledge we, we generate in the lab. All right, perfect. Well, thanks for taking the time to quickly speak with us this morning. I will make sure to include any additional links to some of the published work that we talked about today. And yeah, looking forward to seeing more from you and your team uh, in the future.